You can be seated. It's great to be back here with you again. We, my wife and I were just here uh, for Mother's Day in May, and we missed Father's Day by a week. But we are here for Trinity Sunday this morning, and it is a privilege to worship you. Uh, worship with you. I'm not worshiping you, I promise. <laughs> Cut that out. That was a... Uh, Why don't we pray? That would be a good thing to do. <sighs> Father, we love you this morning. We are in this place because of your son, and we come to you in prayer through his name. We ask that your spirit's presence would lead us and guide us into all truth. Pray that there'd be favor on me this morning to make preaching a delight. Pray that our ears would be of the spirit to hear what you want to say to the church today. Encourage us, challenge us, correct us, build us up to the glory of your name we ask. Amen. This morning, the title of my sermon is The Great Omission. The Great Omission. And I have robbed that very boldly from one Dallas Willard who has a book by the same name. But I think it fits for our text today, text in Matthew 28, that is so well regarded as the source of what is known as the Great Commission. And as a person who has had the privilege of being on the mission field many times, let me assure you that this is an exciting thing for the church to have a presence all around the world because this world is God's world. That was a good chance to say amen right there. This world is God's world. And I was just in India last November, been in other places of the world like Africa, Tanzania, Uganda, Burundi, and so forth. This is a beautiful text for that. We've seen that in our churches and uh, sometimes used with artwork in the sanctuaries of our buildings. And today, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the way that we interact with this text locally and on a personal level. Because I think this text for a lot of us can be the source of what I call church guilt. Because you hear a text like this, and oftentimes it evokes this sort of salesmanship that we feel like we have to be the people who are going to our neighbors and convincing them that they have to become Christians today because if they died in their sleep, look out. They might find themselves spending eternity in the darkness and the burning fires of hell. I honestly think we have had these presumptuous, very reductionistic, oversimplified eschatologies, these explanations of how everything is going to end up. And what we do is we let that inform the way we hear a text like this. And some of us have reduced this text to just for the missionaries, and we absolve ourselves and say, thank God that I don't have to go to Africa. Of course, if you pray that prayer, God is probably going to send you to Africa. But... It is sort of a psychologically untenable position if we read this text or we hear this text and think that somehow we now have to go out and every person who hasn't prayed the sinner's prayer had better pray that prayer lest they die in their sleep or get hit by a Mack truck and they don't get a chance to go to heaven. This is a problematic issue. What do we do with this idea? especially depending on our tradition, but if you come out of the more conservative, evangelical, fundamentalist uh, traditions, we have this tendency to think that we have to take this text, bring it to our job, and convert everybody this week if we really love Jesus. That's what we'll do. The problem is we can't really live that out. I've never met a person who tried to seriously live this way. 
So I find that there's one of two ways to respond to this text locally, and that is either we sit in church on Sunday, the preacher says, you got to go into all the world, you got to go to your neighbor, you got to go to your job, you got to go to your unsafe friends and family, and you've got to get them saved. And we all stand in church and say, amen, amen, yes, with no intention of doing it. And we do that sermon after sermon, month after month, year after year, and what it does is it thins our soul. There's no integrity in that. We're heartily amening something we're not even going to try to do. And ultimately, we end up, we know we're hypocrites in our heart for it. And we split ourselves in several ways every time that happens. Or if we don't do that, if we don't take the path of the hypocrite, we take the path of the lunatic. You know this person. I come from New York, New York City, Times Square, And who is he? He's got a sandwich board on his front and his back, a bullhorn in his mouth, and he's saying, get right or you're going to get left. And everybody just lines up in New York to say the sinner's prayer with that guy, right? Not at all. And there's not anybody in this room who wants to be that guy. So we're not going to go out and take texts like this that are traditionally used to move us towards conversion and proselytizing we're not going to take it seriously like the, the, the preacher man standing in Times Square. But we don't want to be the hypocrite who just says, oh, yeah, that's great. Amen. Praise God. Wonderful. And we're not going to do anything with it. This text can be a problematic text in the, in the local church. It even affects our children. In 1981, my family moved into a new house, new neighbors. My four-year-old sister, Kelly, had introduced herself to the neighbor. She was the outgoing sibling. I was the quiet one who was tucked away in my bedroom, didn't want to talk to anybody. My sister was out making friends with everybody in the neighborhood. Even if they were, you know, 60-year-old adults, she was going to introduce herself. So she's four years old, and she makes friends with our next-door neighbor, our Episcopal neighbor, Mrs. McDonald. And, of course, Kelly is quick to inform her that our father is a pastor. My father was a Pentecostal preacher, and she makes sure that the neighbor know my dad's a preacher. And then the neighbor lights up a cigarette. And my sister looks at her and quite dutifully informs her that she was going to hell. Because, and I quote, God hates cigarettes. (laughs) Kelly was not fulfilling the Great Commission. Okay? This is the sort of witness that in a funny story, a cute story that we know because Mrs. McDonald told my mother, Oh, your daughter informed me I'm going to hell because I smoke. That's a funny story here, but it's really a sad story when it comes to the greater church because most of us are happy, as we rightfully should, give our money to world missions, but locally we don't know how to function. We don't know how to function. Truth be told, the early church did not hear today's gospel text as a call to evangelize the world. That may be a stunning comment, but it is true. The early church, when they heard Matthew 28 read over them, they did not think evangelism. They didn't think we have to go out and tell our neighbors that they've got to get right or they're going to get left. No. They actually had the audacity to believe that the apostles had already done the heavy lifting when it comes to evangelism. Historian Alan Kreider has a book out that's, it's very recent, but it's excellent, and it's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And he draws a few exceptional points about early Christian preachers that are worth noting. Number one, these early preachers in the church, they felt that the 11 plus Paul 
had fulfilled the global witness assignment that Jesus gave them. In other words, they, read, they heard this text so literally. Jesus is looking at these 11. He's saying, you guys go into all the world. And after that, all the preachers felt like we're, they were the product of that work. The second thing Kreider points out is that early preachers saw this text mainly as an opportunity to talk about the Trinity, which is very interesting. It's why it's the lectionary reading on Trinity Sunday, because we're baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Number three, the early preachers in the church saw this text as an opportunity to talk about baptism because they saw baptism as a central act of formation, a central practice that made us Christian. As a matter of fact, baptism was the essence of their theology. You can't come to the table of the Lord if you haven't been baptized in their understanding. And number four... Kreider points out that the preachers and actually the people in the early church didn't feel pressure to be proactive in an explicit witness. They went so far as to note that Sunday gatherings, much like we're in this morning, these were not evangelistic gatherings. You would have never heard a preacher in the second century at the end of the gathering say, guys, go out and invite your friends, invite your neighbors to come back with us next Sunday. For them... Worship was for people who were baptized or who were catechumens, people learning about the faith. This is about as far removed from popular American Christianity as you could imagine. Because Christians often spend their time sitting in churches on Sunday morning being guilted into now going out and making somebody feel bad about the fact they're not a Christian. And at the very least, you got to bring somebody to fill the seat next to you or else look out. Their blood is going to be on your hands. You know, I don't know about you. I've actually heard that text from Ezekiel used to pressure people into witnessing. Think about this. This early church that did not see this as a high-pressure issue, they were not salesmen. This is the church that turned the world upside down. Not exactly what we're doing. This church basically overthrew Rome. <laughs> they outlasted Rome. They took over Rome. And they did it not by using sales pitches. They were dynamic participants. They were very interactive participants, what I would call life from the future. Because Christianity has always been about a way of being human. In other words, we can see hints of this even in Acts chapter 5 and verse 20. Two apostles had been jailed, and it says that an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and look at what the angel said. Go stand in the temple and tell the people the whole message about this life, emphasis on life. In other words, this is, these are not, this is not philosophy primarily. This isn't even abstract theology. This is embodied incarnational life. How we are in the various circumstances and situations we find ourselves. And this is the great omission. The great omission in this context, we were told the point of Christian witness was where we would go when we die. When we witness, we're trying to tell people they can go to heaven when they die. In fact... 
Christian witness was always about speaking to what we could become while we're still alive. We've missed a huge chunk of this. We've been led to believe that our commission was based on information. I wonder if there's anybody in the room this morning who's been hesitant to talk about God, talk about Jesus, talk about faith, strictly because they don't feel they're smart enough. If you've ever felt that, that's being a victim of a false understanding of witness. Because witness was never information-based. Some of the best witness we see in the Gospels are a Samaritan woman who's at a well. And what does she say? She says, come see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. Some of the best witness you ever see in the gospel is one brother saying to another brother, Philip and Nathaniel, come see a man. That, my friends, is Christian witness. It's not arguing about philosophical propositions. It's not arguing about theological tenets. It's about life, the life of Jesus, the life that Jesus brings, a quality of life, a way of being alive. The information we have, and friends, we have information. We have wonderful information. None of this is an either or. This isn't saying that there's nothing to say. It's not saying there's no philosophy. It is philosophical. It is theological. But the essence of it, the essence of it is an overflow of life. The life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we are immersed into when we enter the waters of baptism. And I did this, assuming you get dumped. I could do that if you want to get spritzed. It's either one. I'm sure you already know this. Consider it a reminder in the spirit on Trinity Sunday. Jesus died and was raised so you could be conformed to his image, not escape hell. This is the great omission. Christianity is not assent or agreement to ideas. It's entering into a project to become a different sort of person. That is called discipleship, apprenticeship. Notice the relational nature of the text. Three insights immediately come to mind in this text. Number one, in verse 16, it immediately notes that there are 11. 11. 11 who? 11 men. This is a painful number to everybody who sees it. How many disciples did Jesus call? Twelve. Biblical numerologists, they note that generally speaking, the number 11 is negative because it speaks of falling short. It speaks of an inability to fulfill destiny. It talks about not arriving at the full intention of what started out. Jesus called 12 and there are only 11. In this case, it is a painful reminder that one of their brothers, Judas, was actually Cain. He committed fratricide, and he abetted in the murder of a brother who was far more beautiful and far more innocent than Abel could have ever hoped to be. There they sat, 11 of them, because one of them was a murderer in his heart. And the resurrection didn't undo the, the evil of Judas. The resurrection did not change the fact that there were only 11. Secondly, right after it says that there were 11, it says that they were in Galilee. There are no incidental details. There are no just 
oh, it happens to be there. Who cares if it's Galilee or if it's Tel Aviv or who cares? No, it matters. It matters for many reasons, but among them, this is the place of their childhood. Most of these disciples are from Galilee. They have a Galilean accent as they found in the court of Caiaphas. These are men who not only grew up in Galilee, but they were transformed in Galilee because one of their own from Nazareth said, follow me. And they became disciples of the Son of God in Galilee. Fishermen, tax collectors, become followers of Jesus Christ. And in this case, are commissioned as apostles in Galilee. What's powerful about Galilee is it has no significance apart from Jesus. Jerusalem is the place where logically they should have gone. Jerusalem is the place of political, religious, cultural significance. Galilee, there's nothing in Galilee to the point that people say, can anything good come out of Nazareth in Galilee? And what is Jesus saying when after his resurrection, he calls his 11, not his 12, because one of them had the devil inside of him. He calls his 11, not to Jerusalem, but to Galilee. Isn't it possible that God is saying, I'm not working within your conventional systems. I don't need the temple that Herod built. I don't need the infrastructure and the history that Jerusalem offers because this is a new way of being in the earth and what was done in Israel has come to fruition. And now, as John Wesley would say, the whole world is my parish. Thirdly, it says in the text, and this is where I want you to zero in this morning, that some doubted. Some doubted. Well, we know their names. We know that there are 11. We know that they worshiped. We know that they're looking at Jesus who told them not once, not twice, but three times. The son of man must go to Jerusalem. He will be taken by the religious leaders. He will suffer. He will die. He will be buried and he will raise again. And all through that process, they didn't believe. They didn't believe. They didn't believe. You would think on the other side of the resurrection with Jesus standing before you, doubt would be the last thing you'd be struggling with. At that point, you'd believe. Maybe ashamed, but you would believe. And it says they worshiped, but some doubted. Friends, if you're a leader this morning of anything and you find that people doubt you or don't have confidence in you, take heart this morning. Jesus rose from the dead and still couldn't convince people. Okay? This is an amazing insight into humanity. It feels odd to those of us American Christians who have been told you have to be certain. Are you sure? A couple of quick points. First thing, the doubters are acknowledged. Matthew could have glossed right over this, didn't have to bring this up. But for all of us in this room, and I honestly think it is all of us, who have at one time or another really wondered, is this for real? Is this true? You're not alone. You're in the company of the apostles if you're a doubter. John Chrysostom, one of our greatest preachers ever in the history of the church, he says that we should ad admire the truthfulness of the evangelist, Matthew. 
This is not spin. This is not PR. This is not Instagram making you look like you're a millionaire when you're broke. This is the truth. They doubted. But what I love about this is though the doubters are acknowledged, they are not condemned. How many Christians have sat in church and been made to feel second class because they weren't certain? How many people have walked in and somehow been made to feel less than because they had questions, because they weren't sure? Just like on the road to Emmaus, be encouraged this morning. Jesus walks with those who are depressed in the wrong direction. He walks with those who are discouraged. He walks with those who are doubting. And he does so in ways that are patient and life-giving. He is not condemning. He is not condescending. And if he ever had a chance to really look down the end of his nose, it would be when he stands there in resurrected glory, knowing the hearts of these men who are doubting him. And here's the beautiful thing. They're acknowledged. They're not condemned. But check this out. They are commissioned. Jesus commissions the worshiper and the doubter alike. How beautiful is that? That Jesus can look at someone who's beholding his physical resurrected glory. And they're doubting in their heart. And we know Jesus throughout the Gospels. He knows people's hearts. He's looking at their heart and he commissions them anyway. I would have said, guys, listen. Come back in a week. See if you're sure then, and we'll start over. Right? Not Jesus. Jesus is reckless. Jesus is willing to take risks. That's what the ascension is all about. If I was Jesus, I would have never ascended because I never would have trusted the church to handle my work. I would have said, you know what? I'm immortal. I'm just staying around forever. These people are going to mess it all up. And we've done a fine job, haven't we? Think about that. Could it be that he was willing to commission those doubters because he wasn't looking at them as they were, but as he knew they could be? One of those people, we don't know if he was a doubter or a worshiper, or he was a doubting worshiper. We don't know. But we do know that John the Apostle was there. We know that even if he wasn't a doubter, he was aware of the fact that doubters were in their midst. And he watched these men go from this commission to an upper room in Jerusalem and under the power of the Holy Spirit, turn the world upside down. Maybe this is why towards the end of his life in 1 John chapter 3, this apostle can write these words. Beloved, we are God's children now. Look at this. What we will be has not yet been revealed. But what we do know is this. When Jesus is revealed, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. This is the heart of what Christian life is about. Being like Jesus because you're seeing Jesus. Not because you're hearing a compelling argument. Trinity Sunday, the day we celebrate the fact that God himself is a society. Theologian Ben Myers recently tweeted something that I just thought was so funny. He said, one of the best ways that we can reduce the spread of Trinitarian heresy is if preachers would stop trying to teach about the Trinity on Trinity Sunday. 
And so I didn't come here today to talk about the Trinity as much as I came to talk about life and life in that Trinity. I'd much rather ask you questions. Are we daily living in the newness of life that our baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has brought us? Or have we been content to live a slightly improved life and more moral life? Dallas Willard uses this phrase. He says, the majority of modern American Christianity is the gospel of sin management. I'm a less bad person today because of Jesus. Praise God. Are we content with a slightly better version of ourselves rather than being altogether different, holy, abundant life? How do we close that gap between who we are and who Jesus is? One very unexciting word, discipleship. Discipleship closes the gap. But do you think of discipleship as something for a beginner? Is discipleship something for a new Christian, quote-unquote? Or do you maybe think of discipleship as something for the super-Christians? You know, the electives for the nerds that really, really want to take it seriously. You see, the early church understood that to be a disciple is the same thing as to be a Christian. Discipleship is not one of the many things we do as Christians. It is what we do. This is the great omission. Someone forgot to tell us that discipleship was not an option. Where do we get the idea that you could be a Christian and not be a disciple? It didn't come out of this book. It didn't come out of our history in the church. Both making and living as disciples of Jesus gets to the heart of the great omission. Listen, these disciples, they were not commissioned to draw big crowds, and they were not commissioned to make converts. That was not their job. No, historians have noted this. There are no iconic missionaries in the history of the church between St. Paul and St. Patrick. You know what's interesting? That's the same time period in which Christianity rose to prominence in the Western world. Go figure that. Some of my dearest friends in life are missionaries. I'm not saying we don't want to be missionaries or have missionaries. But the church on the ground, the church in Tulsa, the church in Jenks, or Jinx, I'm from New York, I'm sorry. I say actually, Jinx. Jinx and Bixby and Glenpool and all the plate, Broken Arrow, the, on the ground here, that classic cliche from the church, you are either a missionary or you're a mission field, right? Well, what sort of missionaries are we? We're not proselytizers. We're not salesmen. We're not shilling a pitch to try and get somebody into salvation before the end of the day. The earliest followers of Jesus understood the critical nature of being present to the prevailing culture, but in a way that was contrasting. So we stood out. And we didn't stand out because we were moralistic. 
We didn't stand out 1,900 years ago because we were telling everybody they were doing it wrong. We stood out because in the midst of hardship, we kept a smile. We stood out because we took things like the Sermon on the Mount seriously. And when people disrespected us, we gave them the other cheek and let them disrespect us again. When people wrongfully said, carry that bag a mile. When we got to the end, we said, do you want us to take it another mile for you? And not sarcastic and not cynical. How much of us in the church, how, much of us, how many of us have suffered from this sort of infection of cynicism and sarcasm that is in the prevailing culture? It was like these saints had been immunized and they couldn't be infected. They were men and women who by the power of the Holy Spirit were able to live consistently with their baptism. Like Paul says in Romans chapter 6, since we've been baptized with Christ into his death, so therefore also we walk in newness of life. The focus on character development through catechesis, fancy word, apprenticeship, discipleship. This was the essence of the early church's understanding of evangelism. You know, it's funny to me. Early Christians couldn't become Christians at the end of a church service. There's no altar call. And if the sermon was amazing, if it was stirring, if it moved your heart, you didn't get to come forward and become a Christian. You had to become what was called a catechumen. You had to go through a long period of process. And for them, 1,800 years ago, becoming a Christian was becoming baptized. And you couldn't become baptized until you had been properly taught. And that's what we see in the text, right? You go into all the world teaching and then baptizing. So it says, Jerome, one of the church fathers, first they teach all nations. Then they baptize those they have taught with water. For the body is not able to receive the sacrament of baptism before the soul has received the truth of faith. This is an incomplete contrast to what we think of. What we think of is, if, if our church is cool, I'd be comfortable inviting somebody to check it out on a Sunday. And hopefully at the end of the service, if the preacher doesn't try to talk them into it, I'll have a chance to sell them on this whole thing. Maybe get them to come back again. And somehow that's going to make them a Christian. We want you to invite people to church. I'll say that again to this side of the room. We want you to invite people to church. But you know why we want you to invite people to church? Not so they can be won over by an argument, but they can be won over by the life they see in the room. The love that you have for one another the fact that people who have no business spending time together are spending time together and genuinely loving it, they need to see that. They don't need to hear the Romans road. They don't need an evangelism explosion. They need to see newness of life. They need to see the holy nation from the future here in Tulsa. What were these early leaders in the church who were teaching? 
What were they hoping that the, the students would learn? From Origen to Clement of Alexandria to Tertullian to Justin, the list of church fathers goes on and on. And here's what they wanted the, the, their students to learn. Patience. Anybody besides me struggle with patience? Wave a hand at me. Make me feel better about my badness. I'll wait. I'll wait. More hands in the back. I see it. You can put it down. Anybody else? Right? Patience. Of all the things I've ever admired about the early church, patience was never one of them. I admired their bravery. I admired their boldness. But patience is the most boring, dull quality you could imagine. But here's what they were convinced. Justin said this, patience will draw people. What? This makes absolutely no sense to me. Why would they say this? Because, check this out, patience is evidence that the resurrection is true. Every moment that I fall victim to my own impatience, I'm not living consistent with my baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Every moment I fall victim to my own impatience, I'm convinced in my mind that I don't have enough time, and this has to be resolved now. But if I've been baptized and raised with Christ into newness of life, here's the sort of life I've been raised into, a life that never ends. It's an eternal life, and it doesn't start when I die. It starts now. And if I'm living in eternal life now, I'm not in a rush. Christians are not in a rush because they have no need to fear running out of time. And this way of processing reality, processing your spouse. Has you ever been impatient with your spouse? My wife is on the front row. She's got her arms folded like this. <laughs> impatient with our spouse. It's mostly me. Thank you. <laughs> children. Any parents in the house ever been impatient with children? See, these are the realities. These are the realities that we need to be rewired. We need to be deconstructed and then reconstructed. We need to be broken down and then built back up again into this image of Jesus who can set his face like a flint, be consistent and be patient. I was never impressed by this. I never felt the need for it. I feel it today. I never understood what patience pointed to. I just thought it was just a good thing. You understand that in the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, patience wasn't even a virtue. Patience, the only people who had to be patient were slaves because they had no power. Christianity comes along and says, I can be patient because of power, the power of the resurrection. I don't think I ever came to terms until this week as I was getting ready to come to you, I don't think I ever really came to terms with these opening lines from James, the brother of Jesus, his epistle, when he says, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance or patience, depending on the translation, and let endurance, let patience have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. 
Isn't it amazing that faith is tested to produce patience, and patience becomes the source of everything you need for Christian maturity? We think, we've been taught that all we need is faith. What we need is we need a faith that's been tested by hardship. That's what we need. We don't need faith to speak to our problems so they can get out of our lives. We need faith that will keep us in our problems so the problems can be used by the Spirit of God to shape us into the image of Jesus. What if the very thing that we're trying to avoid, the pain, the hardship, the inconvenience, the disappointment, the uncertainty, whatever you're facing, that you would love it to just go away. What if it's the very thing that the Spirit wants to use to mature you and complete you? What if it's the very thing that God is using to establish your witness? Because people are watching. They're watching how you respond to the loss of a job. They're watching how you respond to cancer. They're watching how you respond to bankruptcy. They're watching how you respond to a marriage that didn't work out. They're watching. And the faith that's tested by those things, we count it joy because we know it's going to produce in us a patience. And that patience is going to be the fertile soil. It's going to be the seedbed of the power. It's going to be the seedbed of the bravery. It's going to be the seedbed of the vibrant life of faith that we so desperately want. We've often emphasized in this text this morning the go. Go into all the world. And I wonder if we can take that out of the lead place. And rather than emphasizing the go, emphasize the with. The only way that we'll be patient in all of our going is if we remember Jesus' final words, that he is with us always. Look at this, to the end of the age. Would you bow your heads this morning?